Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you once again for joining me. So summer is here, and as you probably have already noticed, episodes have been slightly sporadic as I find my schedule a little bit busier than anticipated. And it is summer in Minnesota, right? (laughs) We get three months of good weather here, and we pack as much in as we possibly can outside, uh, because it'll all be dark, cold, and gloomy again before we know it. Oh, and, and one thing, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but if you enjoy the show and you haven't yet, for whatever reason, left a rating on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use, I would love the support. Throw me a handful of stars, thanks in advance, and on to the episode. My guest today is Casey Sepp. She has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The New Republic, and she is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Great to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Eric. So how did this case come to your attention? Sure thing. So, um, you know, I think that like a lot of readers who are interested in the book, I came to this story because of Harper Lee. And I was reporting for The New Yorker on her second novel, this sort of curious manuscript that had supposedly gone missing and then been rediscovered in 2015. And I went down to Alabama to learn about the manuscript and um, to look into there were a lot of rumors and allegations about her health and her ability to consent to publication. And so I went down with a kind of scrum of reporters and we were all trying to find out about Ghost Set a Watchman. And while I was down there, I learned about this other project that Harper Lee had worked on in the years after To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's a really interesting true crime story. And that's what my book, ultimately the first two thirds is about. 
the story that had caught her attention and that she wanted to write a nonfiction book about. And it's a very strange story from eastern Alabama, not not where she was born and raised, but where she had some family. And it was a series of murders between 1970 and 1977. Um that were all attributed to one man, a, a Baptist minister. And he was accused of killing five of his family members for the insurance money that uh, the policies he held on them all. And at the funeral of his last alleged victim, he was gunned down by another relative of hers, a 16 year old stepdaughter who had been found murdered. And um, the circumstances and the um, crime scene were very similar to the earlier ones. And so another relative of hers shot the reverend three times in the head at her funeral. And, you know, if that weren't sort of strange enough, all throughout those original murders, the reverend, who was actually a Baptist minister, had been um, thought by a lot of folks to be practicing voodoo. And they all thought that the reason he was able to get away with these crimes and that the reason the police couldn't hold him accountable and the insurance companies were forced to pay and that he was never really found guilty of any of these murders was that he was a voodoo practitioner. And so that that was all in the in the ether as Harper Lee found out about this case. And she moved to the town where it all happened and covered the trial of the vigilante, which shockingly, if you can believe it, he was defended by the same lawyer who had represented the reverend. Um, for almost 10 years in all of that earlier criminal and civil work. So she found this incredible story, and I got very interested in the original case, but but also in her attempt to write a book about it. I'm sure that most of my listeners are aware of In Cold Blood, Truman Capote's masterpiece, at least have seen the movie and are familiar with Harper Lee's connection to the case and to Capote. Do you think that the story is meant to be Harper Lee's version of In Cold Blood? Yeah, you know, Eric, I think that's a, a fine way of putting it. And I, I would just complicate it in one sense. Um, so you're right to remember that, you know, she was heavily involved in the reporting of In Cold Blood and Lee and Capote were um, childhood friends. He'd actually incredibly spent a few years of his childhood right next door to her. He had some cousins who lived in the little Alabama town where she did. And um, his, for complicated reasons, um, you know, his his mother and his father weren't always able to provide full-time care for him. So he spent a few years there and then spent some other summers there. And so they'd known one another. And when he needed someone to go out to Kansas to help him report the clutter murders, he brought along Harper Lee. And she was certainly interested in that project. And she went back with him several times, as as you're right to, to point out, folks might remember from the two biopics that were just made recently about Capote. One was infamous and the other was Capote. And they're interestingly and, and you know, well-made films. And they both point out a um, kind of interesting rift in the friendship between Lee and Capote that arose after that reporting. And so while on the one hand, she seems to have been out to write her own in cold blood, there, there were very distinct ways in which she was trying to do something different. And I think to my mind, some of the most interesting bits of my book about Lee and Capote's relationship has to do with her concerns over In Cold Blood. And those are questions around journalistic ethics and reporting ethics and the ways in which true crime writers can come to sympathize with their subjects. And she had a lot of concerns about In Cold Blood. And, you know, some of the best letters in the book are these letters that she wrote to Truman Capote's fact checker at The New Yorker, with whom she had an ongoing friendship. And you know, she was she was she was quite candid about the things she objected to in In Cold Blood and the concerns she had about 
the degree to which that quote nonfiction novel was more novelistic than than nonfiction. So in a lot of ways, you know, she was out to write her own in cold blood, but she had very specific ideas about how she wanted it to be more factual and to rely on a kind of old fashioned journalism, one that wasn't built from psychological speculation or that that tried to be more even handed with its subjects maybe than Capote had been. So it's interesting. I mean, it's it's certainly important. And I think, you know, it's it's obvious that she was using in cold blood as a model for the reporting. But in a lot of her correspondence, she's quite deliberate about the ways in which she was trying to do something different. I think you wrote that there are maybe four or five pages of her manuscript that that exist. From reading those four pages, were you able to get some understanding on how she was planning to tackle the subject? Yeah, so it's quite interesting. So, right, so um, one of the lawyers involved in this case, um, after he died, his family found four manuscript pages that seemed to be draft pages Harper Lee had given him. And understandably, he got really excited thinking, you know, he was the lawyer who had defended both Maxwell and the vigilante who murdered the reverend. And so he thought he was absolutely going to be the hero of Harper Lee's book. And the longer she took to write it, the, the more and more he would agitate around her finishing. And he would often for you know any help she needed and he would call and check in about her progress and so she seems to have given him this chapter to sort of you know tell him to calm down and and as a kind of work product for what she was doing but there's also a lot of letters she wrote from so this I mentioned this series of murders took place from 1970 to 1977 and she came to town in the fall of 77 and she actually stayed in town for 9 months and she lived for a little while on Lake Martin in a in a kind of rustic cabin and then for part of the time she moved into a hotel in town just the way she and Capote had out in Kansas. And so there are a lot of letters from those nine months she was in town where she tells people what she's working on and how it's going. And then actually for almost another 10 years, she continues to mention this true crime project in other letters. There are the manuscript pages and there are these letters. And to my mind, the most interesting kind of piece of material history that I found when I was working on my book is there is one page of her notes, and that page of notes is identical to the notes that she made for Capote when they were out in Kansas. So any researcher who's interested in In Cold Blood can go to the New York Public Library, and on microfilm, you can see more than 100 pages of notes that Harper Lee typed for Truman Capote. And in the upper right-hand corner or the upper left-hand corner, she would tell you the date, and beneath that, she would tell you where they were or who they were interviewing. And then she typed up bits of dialogue, bits of description. Sometimes she would hand-draw these Maps for him. And so there's one page of her notes from Alexander City, and they're identical to those. She tells you it's January 12th, 1978. She is interviewing the sister of the Reverend's first victim, his first wife. He was alleged to have murdered in 1970. And she tells you all about what that woman's sister said. And those notes being so similar to the In Cold Blood notes just really do suggest she was undertaking the same kind of scrupulous reporting project. And on top of that, we know that she bought a copy of the court transcript. She got copies of the death certificates and the autopsies for some of the reverend's alleged victims. She interviewed other survivors. And so there's really a lot of evidence that she was working on the same kind of a project and that she intended for it to be nonfiction. Although what's interesting about those manuscript pages is I think frustrated 
by the kind of idiosyncrasies of this original case and some of the deep strangeness of what the reverend was alleged to have done and the kind of incomplete record in the criminal justice records is that in those manuscript pages, Harper Lee actually seems to have fictionalized part of the story. So there's a lot of questions about what she ended up writing, whether it was fiction or nonfiction, whether she finished it and chose not to publish it, whether she never finished it. So there's just a lot, a lot of questions. So that's really why she's only a third of the book and the first two thirds um, are me trying to give you a sense of that case, what actually happened, what was alleged, what kind of investigation the police undertook. And then on the criminal justice side of things, how the reverend actually got through these court trials successfully. And then actually for the lawyer in question, the, the most public trial of his you know, trial career was the trial of the vigilante, um, who he actually managed to get an acquittal for, even though 300 people had watched the murder. Yeah, so fascinating. So let's dig in a little uh, into the life of the Reverend Willie Maxwell, if you don't mind. Sure. It's a it's a really interesting character study. He's a larger than life figure, quite the murderous charlatan. Can you walk us back into his his early life and how he finds himself in this particular town at this particular time? Sure. Yeah. So the story of the Reverend Willie Maxwell begins in um, 1925, and he was born to sharecroppers in this part of eastern Alabama, um, which some folks, if they've ever been to the region, might know because he was born in one of the towns right on Lake Martin, which was one of these hydroelectric power projects where um, the Alabama Power Company dammed the Tallapoosa River, built this huge hydroelectric dam, and it really, it just changed the landscape and it changed the surrounding towns. These textile mills, which had been, you know, operated by men and mules were suddenly mechanized and there was electricity to run the towns. And a lot of the kind of rural folks who had been sharecroppers like Willie's parents suddenly had jobs in town at the mills. And that's the life he was born into. And Coosa County, where he was born, is actually one of the most rural counties in all of Alabama. So he had a kind of bucolic childhood. And then he did what a lot of young men did at the time. He um, enlisted in the army and he was drafted and he served in World War II. And I, I think to the shock of most folks who know the story, who only know the the murder allegations, they're surprised to learn that the the Reverend Maxwell was actually a distinguished soldier, and you know he was honorably discharged and he actually re-enlisted, so he served four years in the army. And he came home and he got married, married another local girl, and he um, for basically 20 years lived a mostly upstanding lifestyle. And he um, not only worked as an itinerant preacher, so he would preach at any parish that would have him and he would do funerals and revivals and just provide, you know, the kind of rural ministry where no one church could kind of pay him a full-time salary. He always did it part-time. And so alongside the ministry, he, he worked at one of the cotton mills that had made the uniform he wore, wore during World War II. And he worked for a while at a local rock quarry. And he actually did a little bit of sharecropping too. And so it was just very hardworking. And, you know, you mentioned you know, the, to the, the the point of the podcast name, is actually pretty notorious back then, but not for the murders. He was notorious for his inspiring preaching and his command of scripture. And he actually had this sartorial flair that, you know, even though he was doing these kind of dirty and physical jobs, um, he would often show up at the, um, at the rock quarry and at the mill and even once he started doing um, work for the timber industry in Alabama, he would show up to these woodyards in three-piece suits. 
and you know is very recognizable, very distinguished, and notorious, conspicuous. And so all of it was was all of the folks who knew him around Lake Martin were quite surprised in the summer of 1970 when his first wife, a woman he'd been married to for 21 years, was found murdered, and he was the prime suspect in the. Um, police realized that his alibi didn't hold. He claimed to have been at a revival that night. And there was a neighbor of his who was going to testify that he had been out all night and that, in fact, he had lured his wife out of the house by calling to tell her that he had been in an automobile accident. And, you know, the, the police were quite confident that they were going to get a conviction. And they were surprised when the, the trial finally happened that their star witness, this woman who lived next door to the reverend, changed her testimony and she instead gave him an alibi and he was acquitted and they couldn't figure out you know why she had changed her mind and then lo and behold a few months after that trial she became the second mrs maxwell and you know not long after that um actually you know less than a year after they were married she was found murdered too under very similar circumstances to the first mrs maxwell and then a brother of the reverends was found murdered. And then a nephew of the reverends was found murdered. And, you know, one by one, these relatives, all of whom he had lucrative life insurance policies on, and when the insurance companies wouldn't pay, the same lawyer who was representing them in these criminal cases would sue the insurance companies in civil court. So he was recovering, you know, policy after policy and cobbling together, you know, $1,000 here, $3,000 there, $5,000 here, you know sometimes dozens of policies on one individual that amounted, you know, in today's dollars to about a half a million dollars in life insurance policies. This went on and on and on until 1977 when a 16-year-old stepdaughter of his was found murdered under similar circumstances too. They were almost all found in cars on the side of the road on these kind of rural country roads in Alabama. And the stepdaughter was found under the wheel well of one of the reverend's cars and Again, the police expected to charge him with the murder. They had just they had just gotten a finding of homicide. They were investigating. They were gathering evidence, taking witness testimony. And before they could charge the reverend, that's when he was gunned down at that final funeral. So it was just, you know, it was a sensational case at the time because over and over again, the reverend was the most likely suspect, but he was never convicted of any of the murders. And in fact, over and over again, he prevailed in civil court and was able to make a lot of money off the insurance policies. So it was, he was really then notorious for the crimes and people wondered who would be next. People wondered how much money he'd made. People wondered how he got away with it all. Um, it was just really a well-known case around this part of Alabama. So Maxwell, as he continues murdering these people, he seems to be more and more careful of covering his tracks as he goes along. When his first wife, Mary Lou Maxwell, is, is murdered, it's pretty obvious she's murdered, right? But as these murders progress, they appear more and more as accidents. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so the records that exist from the murder of the first Mrs. Maxwell, there's a full police file, there are autopsy files, and there are some of the court documents. And so we know right away the police thought it was a homicide. The finding came back from the crime lab. There was a lot of forensic science involved. Um, they they weren't able to recover the reverend's clothes from the day of the murder, but they did find that, you know, he had a trash barrel and he had recently burned. And so there's a lot of circumstantial evidence um, that, that led them not only to, you know, at the scene of the crime, determine it was a homicide, but to suspect that the reverend had been involved. And for some reason, though, it actually takes them a while to get they, they convene a grand jury initially. 
no charges are brought. And he doesn't actually go to trial until basically the next August. So there's a little bit of delay, but that has everything to do with the kind of machinations of the district attorney's office at the time. The original investigators were all quite certain of what they'd found. And Partly it's because unlike some of the later deaths, um, Mary Lou Maxwell's body was was actually just hugely traumatized. And, you know, the, the cause of death was hemorrhage and shock. And, um, you know, there were signs of legation around the neck and there was a massive trauma inflicted on her head. And, you know, the, the crime scene was very bloody in a way the subsequent crimes weren't. So to your point, there's a there's a kind of M.O. that the police begin to identify over and over again and it involves the placement of the cars and that sort of thing but initially at least it was it was a very violent crime scene and it was very obviously homicide because there was minimal damage to the car but maximal damage to the reverend's wife's body and obviously the the motive in all of these homicides is money uh, but it seems that with his first wife mary lou it might have been something a little bit more than pure financial gain I mean, it was brutal enough that he might have been taking out some anger on her. Um, you, you suggest that she might have discovered that he was cheating on her, which which might have caused some friction. Yeah. So you asked about the timeline. And I think that one of the kind of most curious facts about this case is, again, the, the reverend and his first wife, Mary Lou, had gotten married in April of 1949, and she was found murdered in August of 1970. So it was actually a, a fairly, at least from the outside, um, happy marriage or, or content marriage for all of those years. And so it was quite shocking when she was found murdered in, in, in August of 1970, and it's why some people found it hard to believe that the reverend could have been involved because they had been married for so long. There were no signs of unhappiness. But when the police started to investigate her death and the reverend's lifestyle, I think what you're referring to is some of what they found right away, which is that the reverend had a number of um, what folks called lady friends. And there were women who he was making car payments for, and there were women who he had been seen with around town. And there was even a woman um, with whom he had had an illegitimate daughter who he had legitimated in court earlier that year. So in, in January of 1970, um, whatever Mary Lou Maxwell knew about her husband's infidelity, he legitimated that daughter um, in the in the local courthouse. And so, you know, publicly claimed her and gave her his last name. And, and it seems like started to make um, financial payments to support her. So the, the infidelity was more well known. And that's one of the things that's so interesting in the notes that um, Harper Lee made when she interviewed one of Mary Lou Maxwell's sisters uh, in in 1978 when she was researching this case. You know, some of the notes are about the marriage and how even though the Reverend wasn't physically abusive, he was quite mean to Mary Lou and that she was unhappy. And what Mary Lou's sister told Harper Lee is that um, Mary Lou would never have divorced. She would never have left her husband. And so you can sort of imagine the position the Reverend was in. He might have wanted a divorce but wasn't able to get one. Um, you know, his lady friends might have been unhappy with the situation. Um, certainly at that point, he has a number of life insurance policies he's taken out on Mary Lou, several which, you know, you might just say were the, the work of a dutiful husband, although he starts taking out additional policies on her in, in July of 1970. Um, and those are some of the insurance policies since they were taken out so soon before her death. They're some of the first that the insurance companies try and challenge. 
because for an insurance company, the spouse, you know, the beneficiary, whomever that is, is almost always the likeliest suspect in any of these cases of homicide. So they almost always undertake their own investigation of these crimes, or they did at the time when it was easier to take out these kinds of policies. But yes, at least then the police, in addition to the financial motive, which they found out quite quickly because he was supporting so many other family members that the reverend was was in significant debt. In addition to that financial motive, they thought that um, the infidelities might have been related. And in fact, they actually, um, one of the things that sort of fell out of the public memory of this case is they actually um, brought charges against one of the reverend's girlfriends, alleging that she had been involved in the murder of Mary Lou. Because there was always this question about these crime scenes. You know, they were they were quite isolated, quite remote, and the victim was found in their own vehicle. And so the police all along thought that probably the reverend had an accomplice or an accessory who was helping him not only with the bodies, but but staging the crime scenes and then helping him to get away so that they could be found by some subsequent party. Um, and indeed, in one of the later in one of the later murders, the police interviewed two men, both of whom were willing to testify in court that the reverend had solicited their assistance in the murder of his stepdaughter, that the reverend had promised them um, some kind of financial inducement or, you know, had made assurances that they would never be tied to these crimes and sort of talk them through what he was going to do to his stepdaughter and how they could help. So that 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 theory that he had always had an accomplice um, was was bolstered later by the testimony of two men who had not participated, but who had been solicited to, to do just that. So the um, motive ongoingly was money. But you're right to wonder if in this first case, um, something more was involved. We will be right back. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. 
From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Rivas Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. One of my favorite parts of your book is the history you, you offer on these period insurance companies and how easy it was during this time to commit insurance fraud. Some of these outfits were allowing people to to basically take out policies willy-nilly without background checks on pretty much anyone they wanted to. And he was really taking advantage of this. Yeah, I mean, thanks for the chance to talk about it. I'm sure your listeners are scratching their heads wondering, like, oh, could there be a more boring subject than than life insurance? But um, I think it's an important part of this case. And, you know, we were we were talking earlier about, you know, is the reverend a serial killer? And you know, fi- financial motivations for serial killings are, are not always talked about. I think that we have this kind of cultural idea of serial killers as just, you know, motivated by madness or malice or, you know, some kind of sexual deviance. And of course, money is a, is a perfectly fine motive. It's motivated people to do all sorts of horrible things. And in the case of the Reverend, um, right, you know, this is the kind of wild west of life insurance. And it's exceedingly easy to take out these policies. Um, I was shocked, you know, a, a couple of the most interesting artifacts I found when I was working on the book. So, you know, there are a couple of things you expect, like you could open magazines and just the way today there are these like little cardboard subscription forms. Well, back then there were these tear sheets for life insurance. And, you know, it was like pay 10 cents now or pay a dollar now and get a $10,000 policy. And, you know, you could find those in newspapers and magazines. But there were also these matchbooks that companies would give out. And, you know, you would just tear off the matchbook and it would have the little form you would fill out. And, you know, it basically all you needed was like, you know, the name, the birth date, the social security number and a correspondence address. And sometimes the companies would follow up with a medical exam or look into the consent of the insured. But often they would just write the policy. And beyond that, you know, it was really interesting, like you could go to an airport at that time and, you know, put a quarter in a vending machine and get a policy, a life insurance policy for the duration of the flight. Now that changed when someone bombed an airplane and, and, and attempted to claim life insurance policies on some of the passengers. And indeed, the kinds of things that the Reverend was getting away with in the 70s, you know, have been fixed by regulation and laws. And we have things now like insurable interest. And when an insurance company writes a policy now, you know, you undergo a medical exam and you have to sign a form and there are centralized databases so that they know exactly how many policies you know, any one individual holds on any other number of individuals. But, you know, those protections didn't exist. And I think it's, you know, it's the Reverend was incredibly entrepreneurial. He would he would really just, you know, he wouldn't take out all the policies with one company again. And, it you know, he might have had 14 policies or 17 policies on one individual, but they were with 14 different companies. And so it took a long time for those companies to kind of catch on. And it was actually the lawyers they hired sometimes who would say, 
oh, wait, do you have a case in Clay County? I do, too. Is it this guy, Willie Maxwell? And when they started to contact the forensic science lab for the state of Alabama, looking for handwriting analysis or trying to get documents related to the crime scenes, that was when they started to realize the pattern. And that was when the lawyers started to realize, you know, they were often all going up against the same reverend from Coosa County and his lawyer from Alexander City. Um, So it really is, you know, it's an interesting kind of financial crime, too. Yeah. And I mean, it's just wild to think that you could just be strolling around, going about your day, and not realize someone had taken out like a dozen life insurance policies on you. Yeah, again, it seems so silly to say now, because most of us, you know, if you've ever taken out a policy on, you know, your husband or your brother, you know, that person gets a phone call, they have to, you know, have a notarized document, they get a medical exam, and there are just so many more protections. But it's like any industry, those protections and those regulations are often, you know, written in response to fraud. And that is how we tend to, you know, things get refined and reformed, but only in response to bad actors. And so that's why, you know, again, a few pages of the book are sort of devoted to the history of life insurance. And it's partly because I think you need to understand how it was working in order to understand how someone like the Reverend could get away with it. Because on the one hand, you know, he was entrepreneurial and he was really good at exploiting a system. On the other hand, it just was operating in such a different way than it does today. Because I think, you know, if I had just written the book and said, you know, here are the 17 policies he had just on the second wife, people would have thought there's no way he could get away with this. You know, how could one how could he have even taken these out? And the answer is, you know, because we have some of the evidentiary forms from these um, civic or these civil cases, you know, which went up through the county courts and the circuit courts and even all the way to the state court of appeals or the federal court for some of the larger policies. You know, we can see these handwritten policies and he was pretending to be his mother or his brother or his stepdaughter and he was forging their signature and just using his own correspondence address. So to your point, they may never have even known that he had these policies on them because he never got their permission and the insurance company, because they were such low denominations, you know, a thousand, three thousand, five thousand dollars, they never followed up with the insured. They just wrote the policy. Another thing that is is kind of hard to understand, um, and you do your best to explain it in the book, but it, it still is so confounding. <laughs> How was he so easily able to find another wife <laughs> in the in this little community um, so quickly? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the kind of light laughter there. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about this case, and um, especially when you think about, you know, Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, trying to write about it is there is a lot of dark humor. And there is a lot of, you know, gothic elements to the story. And one of them, right, is on the one hand, here is a minister accused of killing his first wife. And so one response of the community might have just been instant revulsion and to shun him and to reject him. But of course, for a lot of people, it was easier for them to believe that he had been falsely accused. And so a certain group of people just thought this is all a misunderstanding. Either he had been framed or, you know, the police had just done what they sometimes did, which is just, you know, accuse the nearest black man of the murder. And so for some people, they just thought it was a big misunderstanding. And they thought, well, maybe that's why his next door neighbor, whose husband had also died recently, you know, she was a grieving widow. He was a grieving widower. 
she had children, you know, that he was just an upstanding man who had taken over the responsibilities of her deceased husband. And so that's what a certain group of people thought. Now, of course, right away, there were, there was a lot of rumor and there was a lot of gossip and there was a much larger camp of people who thought it was all too coincidental. It was too coincidental that right around the time he wanted to divorce his wife, she was found murdered. It was too coincidental that the next door neighbor, who was younger and more attractive than Mary Lou, was suddenly available to get married because her husband had died under mysterious circumstances too. And for that group of people, um, you know, the the rumors that started to circulate already in, in 1971 about the Reverend Maxwell that he was a voodoo priest and that he would, what he was able to do was, um, you know, not only craft potions that would kill people in a way that the police couldn't detect, but he could thwart police investigations. He could intimidate people out of testifying against him. He could make love potions that would affect his neighbor. And that is really the way they started to understand the life and accomplishments of the Reverend Willie Maxwell, that actually none of this was pure coincidence. None of this was you know, failed police work. This was all, you know, the the masterminding of a voodoo priest who could control the world in ways he wanted to. And so it's one of the stranger elements of this case and sort of like the little riff on life insurance I give you. I give you a little bit of an account of hoodoo and voodoo and root working in this part of Alabama and in in this part of the South because it's very interesting. Like there were certainly voodoo communities, not only in this part of Alabama, but around the South. You know, there were people selling court case candles where if you burned it, supposedly you would get the jury verdict you wanted. And there were people selling love potions and there were people selling death potions. And so all of this was in the ether, even though there doesn't seem to have been any evidence that the reverend was ever involved in this. So it's an interesting part of the story. And to your question about, you know, well, how does he get a second wife? And then not to spoil it by jumping too far ahead. But he actually, you know, there is a third Mrs. Maxwell in the story. And I think that for a lot of people, their only way of understanding it, their only way of understanding why women would continually put themselves in danger and why the police could never, you know, get a conviction and why the insurance companies had to pay out over and over and over again. You know, some of those folks had supernatural explanations and the way they still talk about this case is, you know, the voodoo preacher from Coosa County who could, you know, charm and spell people to do whatever he wanted. And another possible motive would be that before he killed his first wife, I mean, he was in serious financial trouble. Suddenly he's flush with cash. That might have been attractive for someone as well, uh, um, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important, right, you know, on the one hand, you want to talk about, you know, um, crimes like this in the way that the community does. And so that's why I would never have censored those voodoo rumors, because they're just a huge part of the case. They were part of the fear. They were part of the chaos at the time. And they're part of how people talk about it today. But I do think it's really interesting. One of my favorite letters that I found where Harper Lee is writing about the Reverend Willie Maxwell, she says he might not have believed in what he preached. He might not have believed in voodoo, but he had a profound and abiding belief in insurance. And I think that's such a great quote, because on the one hand, we've already, you know, we've moved past the kind of religious hypocrisy of someone who would preach the gospel, but then, you know, commit insurance fraud or murder. And we've kind of eliminated the likelihood that he was a voodoo practitioner because there's no evidence for that. And so we're left with exactly what Harper Lee kind of thought was her ongoing theory of the case, which is his motive was greed. And that, you know, underneath all of these supernatural rumors and underneath all of these, you know, police and crime lab failures was the straightforward crime of murder and the straightforward motive of greed. 
What were some of the specific rumors? One that comes to mind that struck me is is that people thought he could turn into a black cat at at will, right? Yeah, I mean, I I often bring that one up during readings because I I like to tell the story. So, you know, look, you you might think there are a lot of rumors and, and it's everything from he wore clothespins on his ears to if he drove past your house, he could make your lights go off. You know, people said he kept jars in his house, you know, filled with blood and they were labeled love, death and hate. And that, you know, he could make any of them act on any individual he needed to. And, you know, that he carried around these um, dried pepper poisons that would kill you in an instant. You know, if he looked at you the wrong way, you could die on the spot. So there was just a lot of fear. He was truly, you know, most of us grow up with the boogeyman. But a lot of these kind of rural communities where voodoo is practiced grow up with the fear of the hoodoo man, you know, someone who has the power, you know, if you look at them the wrong way to just, you know, you come down with an illness and you die a few weeks later. And, you know, the black cat rumor is one I like because lest you think that these are just rumors, you know, told to an out-of-town reporter in the 2000s looking into this case, Harper Lee, when she was down around Alexander City working on her own, you know, version of the life and death of the Reverend Willie Maxwell, adopted a stray black cat. And she called it the Reverend Maxwell because already people were talking about his, you know, these were already part of the story, these rumors and these things that people thought he could do. So it's not just, you know, invented for the sake of the, you know, out of towner. These were things that people were telling Harper Lee at the time. And this was part of the kind of power attributed to him. And there's another one. There's another thing that I just thought was so absurd. But, you know, you've you've heard these stories of like people doing things after they're dead. And so someone told me the reverend had voted in an election two years after he died, which, of course, there's no evidence of. But I will tell you, his funeral was one of the most well attended funerals in this part of the state. And what people will say about why they went was to make sure he was really dead so that they could see him in the casket and verify that he was actually dead because they didn't think he could be killed. And they thought that, you know, there was no way he would ever be murdered and that, in fact, maybe he hadn't really been murdered. He'd faked his own death. It's interesting as well, uh, just this idea that he's a Christian minister preaching the gospel and that at the same time he was viewed as a hoodoo man. The idea of voodooism and Christianity is is being compatible. It's hard sometimes to wrap one's head around this. Yeah, I mean, and thanks for asking about it. I I truly think one of the most, you know, I got to research a lot of different things for this book. And, you know, on the one hand, I had to learn about, you know, the, the growth of the forensic science industry in Alabama. And I had to learn about, you know, the history of the true crime genre. But I actually think the voodoo research was some of the most interesting. And I came in, I think, with a lot of preconceived notions about, you know, what it is and who practices it. And unfortunately, like a lot of people, I think those were those were misconceptions from film and television and kind of sensational accounts when, in fact, you know, there are a lot of straightforward facts about voodoo. One is that it's incredibly syncretic. So actually, it wouldn't have been that odd for a Christian minister to dabble in voodoo or hoodoo and not just in New Orleans, but throughout the South. So that's one thing. Another thing is that it was incredibly interracial. So it wouldn't have been odd, you know, you would have had a black minister who was providing, you know, hoodoo charms and potions to a lot of white clientele. And another thing that I found really interesting and that truly did make me think differently about voodoo is that for a lot of folks, it was just a kind of alternative 
medical system. And so if you think about it, a lot of pockets of the rural South where um, there just wasn't a lot of sophisticated medical care available or it was too expensive or it was um, truly, you know, it was only available to whites or to those who could afford it. Understandably, there was this kind of alternative, almost homeopathic medical system. And, you know, that meant that natural remedies and kind of herbal remedies that a lot of us today are kind of rediscovering were being administered almost as, you know, medicine. So someone came with a toothache or a backache and it was called hoodoo or voodoo or root working, but actually it was just alternative forms of medicines and poultices and salves and things like that. So I think it's important, you know, on the one hand, Again, I, I would never have censored the stories that were told about the reverend, but alongside of those sensational and dark and murderous stories about, you know, voodoo priests and the people they killed were all of these positive uses of hoodoo and voodoo and all of these kind of legitimate believers and practitioners who look to it not only for, you know, emotional or spiritual support, but, but actual remedies and recipes and things like that. So as part of the book that there's a little bit of a tension because I want to lift up this legitimate system of belief, which is, you know, ancient and storied and, and still today practiced by a lot of sincere practitioners, but also, you know, that that is used in a kind of fear mongering and misrepresentative way. And that's the kind of stuff the reverend was accused of. And so it's important to realize, even if he wasn't a practitioner, that he lived in this community of people willing to believe that he could be or that anyone could be. And so, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting stuff. And again, I, I know I know that we're kind of talking mostly about the reverend and these murders, but it's quite interesting if there weren't already enough writers in the mix. So Harper Lee is obviously the kind of true crime star. You know, she she's in this book because of the work she tried to do on her own book and the work that she and Capote did on In Cold Blood. But actually I actually think one of the most surprising writers who turns up in the book is this African-American novelist, Zora Neale Hurston. And she did a tremendous amount of research and reporting on Kudu in the American South and actually, you know, did some on zombieism in the Caribbean, too. But she went around collecting these stories and um, she's still one of the, the finest sources of information on hoodoo and voodoo in the American South. And um, I just love that I got to include her in the book. And interestingly enough, um, she went on to do some true crime reporting, too. So I think that these things are just, you know, interesting little threads in the story. And, you know, all along in, in my book, I try to stay focused on the reverend and what he was accused of and how, you know, people thought he got away with it all and what Harper Lee was trying to write. But every so often I try to follow these other threads that, that just deepen the story and make it more interesting and connect it maybe to some of the other stories we think about, like gothic stories of the South and true crime stories of the region. So the final victim was a 16-year-old girl, Shirley Ann Ellington. That seemed to be the final straw um, for a gentleman by the name of Robert Burns. And just a week or so after Shirley Ann is murdered, it's, it's her funeral. Everyone is there, um, including, to the chagrin of many, the Reverend Willie Maxwell. Yeah, so Shirley Ann is found murdered on June 11th, 1977. And um, it's interesting, she's 
a stepdaughter, the Reverend, she's actually grown up with um, his third wife is, is who kind of informally adopted her as a young girl. And um, she moved in with the Reverend once that woman married the Reverend. And so she's 16 and she's very well liked. And she has um, a number of other siblings and family members who, um, you know, look after her and live in the area and care very much about her. And one of those people is Robert Burns. And so he's a truck driver. He, he's from this part of Alabama, but he's actually on the road um, driving his truck and he hears that she's been found murdered and he races home and he's very close with Shirley Ann and you know Robert's one of the people who I, I got to interview for the book and um, it's it's quite striking even today to hear him talk about um, Shirley Ann he was very close to her he called her shell he loved her a great deal and um, you know just was extremely disturbed when she was found murdered and was already hearing rumors when he was on the road and he got home to Alabama and you know this was the talk of the town this was the fifth relative of the Reverend Maxwell's who was found you know dead on the side of the road and she's 16 and you know what Robert said then and what Robert would tell you today is he was terrified of who might be next you know he was not only traumatized that Shirley Ann was dead but he was worried about her siblings he was worried about his brother who had been married um, to the reverend's third wife uh, and divorced her you know he says like a lot of people you just didn't know who the reverend had insurance on and he was worried the police were not going to be able to hold the reverend accountable and so he on June 18th um, at her funeral stood up and um, shot the reverend three times. And, you know, that was a funeral where there were 300 people. And you can imagine the chaos when those shots rang out. And, you know, a lot of people just raced out of the funeral home or they leapt out of the chapel windows and they just raced for safety because they didn't know who had been shot or who had done the shooting. And Robert actually turned himself in right away and um, basically made almost two instantaneous confessions and said, you know, not only that he had shot the reverend, but that he would do it again if he had to, and that he was only doing what he thought the police should have done a lot sooner. So it's a tremendously public murder, and it's, you know, almost immediately talked about as an act of vigilantism, and people know that Robert was related to Shirley Ann, they know that he had been following some of the earlier crimes and nothing about it is is shocking. You know, a lot of people thought that the reverend was going to be gunned down sooner. There were there were these rumors that he even wore a bulletproof vest because he was afraid for his own safety. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, um, two men come forward to tell the police that they had been solicited as accomplices for Shirley Ann's death. So there's just a lot of, you know, talk about this and talk about what Robert had done and concern about what would happen to Robert. And I think where this case gets truly strange is, um, you know, the reverend had had the same attorney for almost 10 years. And that attorney had represented him over and over again in these police investigations and all of these civil cases. You know, he'd brought over a dozen civil cases trying to get the reverend the insurance money he was owed. And over and over again, they had prevailed. And that attorney almost right away announces that he will be defending Robert Burns. Because Robert Burns is indicted almost immediately. And, you know, that attorney says, you know, I, despite having defended the Reverend, I'm going to go ahead and defend Robert Burns. So it's kind of, that's more shocking even than the murder to a lot of people. They wonder, you know, why has Robert Burns chosen this attorney? Why has this attorney agreed to defend him? And, and that's part of, again, why the case becomes so sensational. It's the same defense attorney who's going to walk into court and argue both that Robert shouldn't be held responsible for the murder and 
probably, you know, people were right to assume going to argue that his former client deserved it. So his name is Big Tom Radney. Um, and I have to know, um, why did he decide to defend Robert Burns, do you think, after so many years with Maxwell as his client? Yeah, I mean, Eric, isn't that a great question? And um, I think that, you know, it might surprise folks if they if they pick up my book, Furious Hours. You know, it's obvious why the Reverend gets a full section of the book. It's probably obvious to them why Harper Lee, this incredibly famous novelist, gets a section. But Big Tom actually gets his own section in my book. And I think that he is every bit a larger than life character as the Reverend himself. And, you know, Tom Radney had had this kind of interesting, although mostly unsuccessful political career before the Maxwell case. He was a very liberal Democrat during the Wallace years, and he had served in the state legislature, and he'd run for lieutenant governor. And so he really loved hard cases. And, you know, just the way he went about trying to win these elections, nobody thought he could. As a trial lawyer, he really loved to take cases that people thought were unwinnable. And, you know, as a kind of politician and performer, he was built for trial law. And I think that, you know, it's the kind of career you could have in the 70s. It's like the life insurance business. Like, just so few cases today go to trial. It's so rare that you really get to go before a jury in the way that Big Tom did over and over and over again. So he took a lot of homicide cases and he would basically take, you know, any any case people thought was unwinnable. Those were the kinds of cases Big Tom liked to take. And, you know, he had a little niche in these criminal cases. Look, he'd already represented the reverend uh, for the murder of his first and second wife and um, you know, his brother and his nephew. And so in some ways, it's not surprising why he would take this other, you know, hugely public case. He liked to take cases that were going to get publicity and that would draw a lot of attention. And, you know, cases where you really had to fight for the verdict you wanted. And so in that sense, it's 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 less confusing why Tom Radney would take the case and more confusing why Robert Burns would agree to be defended by the same man who had defended the reverend. And, you know, what Robert would say is his brother had encouraged him to let Big Tom be his lawyer because there was no better lawyer if he were accused of something criminal than Tom Ratney. And just the way he'd been able to get the reverend off, Robert Burns's brother thought, well, he'll be able to get Robert off, too. So um, in the summer of 77, he takes this case and he starts figuring out, you know, what kind of a defense he's going to offer. And I think that, you know, I think some of my favorite chapters in the book are the kind of slow down, you know, John Grisham-esque look at this trial when ultimately Tom Radney decides he's going to use one of his kind of signature defenses. And he claims that Robert Burns was not guilty by reason of mental insanity. And he mounts an insanity defense, which is, you know, hard today. And it was hard back then. And it's really interesting to watch the kind of subtext of that trial and, and what was actually being argued by the state and by the defense and what was really being considered by the jury. And again, I think it's one of these things that's so obvious why Harper Lee was interested in this case, because just the way that vigilantism comes into play at the end of To Kill a Mockingbird, she was really grappling with the kind of, you know, moral discernment that a community undertakes in a court of law and the degree to which they decide to hold people responsible for criminal acts or to appeal to a kind of deeper, more rudimentary justice, which looks at, you know, are there people who deserve to die? Are there people who can act outside of the law for good reasons? And if so, how do we sanction them? And that's really what's going on in that trial of Robert Burns. And, um, 
I don't think it's a spoiler to say, you know, Tom Radney gets an acquittal because the real mystery is how he does it. And as you point out in your book, the insanity defense, which had been used for so many prominent trials in the 20th century, in the last part of the 19th century, had gone out of fashion by the 70s, right? People were tired of it. Oh, totally. I mean, it's really interesting. Like when you go back and look at the coverage just of the Robert Burns trial, the prosecutor in that case is basically, you know, he he goes on these tirades about how it's a revolving door at the state mental hospital and, you know, it's a fake defense and it's not real. And, you know, he challenges the credentials of the um, mental health professionals who testify about Robert Burns's mental condition. And I was actually shocked. You know, I knew that this had been a controversial defense for a long time. But I was actually shocked to learn in the 70s there were certain states that had just outright abolished it and they would not let you make this kind of defense. And, you know, of course, it's like the life insurance industry. There were real reforms put into place to try and govern, you know, how people could describe their own mental health and what kind of experts could be called to testify. But, um, you know, in 77, it's a defense big time as used before, and it's one that he brings to bear on this case. Back after a few brief messages. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned for the final time. So we won't get a lot into the trial itself. It's an extensive one. It deserves to be read about. But I do want to ask you about one particular witness, a man by the name of Alfonso Murphy. Yeah, sure. Could you talk about his connection to the murders and and what he had to say about them? Yeah, sure thing. So I think that, you know, it's interesting One of the ways in which the trial of Robert Burns is odd is that to some extent, you know, Tom Radney is a masterful defense attorney because he manages to turn it into a trial of the Reverend Willie Maxwell, you know, which is to say he does what we are always told not to do, which is, you know, he makes it about the victim. And part of what he succeeds is doing is he, he succeeds in making it clear that even though this was his former client, even though for years he had insisted on this man's innocence, he succeeds in making it seem like William Maxwell was a menace and, you know, a public safety issue. And one of the ways he does that, um, and, and it's interesting, I, I, I always call Alfonso Murphy the man from eclectic 
because one of the things we haven't talked about, because there, there are so many details of the criminal cases to get into, but um, actually one of the things I loved about getting to report this story is getting to know the state of Alabama so well and this, this part of the state over around Lake Martin. And there are a lot of really great place names in the book, but to my mind, Eclectic is one of the best. And so there's a witness who's called and he's from Eclectic and he gets up and he takes the stand. And what's really interesting is... Um, Alfonso Murphy is the guy's name, and he worked for the Reverend for a little while. So we were talking about all the various jobs the Reverend has. You know, he works in the rock quarry, he works in the textile mill, he's a sharecropper, he's a Reverend. But he also does this thing called pulp wooding, which is a part of the Alabama timber industry where it's basically kind of the, the, the lowest level you could work in the timber industry. And you would go out and you would cut short wood and you would deliver it to pulp wood mills and it was kind of like independent contractors and some of these guys would have tiny crews and the reverend had a tiny crew but he had a lot of turnover and part of the reason for that was people were afraid of him you know as more and more of his relatives started to turn up dead his employees often worried they would be next and in fact james hicks one of his nephews the nephew who was found murdered had worked on the reverend's pulp wooding crew and so he'd worked with this guy alfonso murphy and alfonso murphy gets called during the trial of robert burns and when he sits down to testify he basically says you know i quit the reverend's crew because i was afraid and one of the reasons i was afraid was because the reverend asked me if I would help him commit a murder. And he gets really specific. You know, he says, you know, the reverend told him to meet him at a certain time and place. And once they were there, he talked about how he would give him cash or he would buy him a car or he would help help him buy a house. And he is trying to get Alfonso Murphy to help him murder his stepdaughter. And he gets into the details of the thing. And he says, you know, you wouldn't have to necessarily kill her if you didn't want to. Like, I could be the one to kill her and you could just help me stage the car accident. And, you know, for all of the, you know, kind of suffocating rumors about voodoo and about supernatural powers and all of that business, when Alfonso Murphy got on the stand, I think it was quite shocking for the for the spectators at Robert Burns's trial to realize actually everything the reverend was accused of could have been done by a man and could have been done by a man with living, breathing, human accomplices and accessories. And in fact, that's what he tried to get Alfonso Murphy to do. And Murphy says that, you know, part of the, you know, he, he's talking to the reverend about why he wants to kill his stepdaughter. And the reverend tells him that he's afraid she's trying to kill him. So I think Murphy's testimony is really interesting, not only because he kind of lays out the, the, the motive and the means, he really gives us access into the reverend's psychology because here's a man who's so paranoid. He thinks his 16 year old stepdaughter is trying to murder him. And seven years into a series of murders, you know, of wives, of, of a nephew, of a brother, possibly of a neighbor, you get the sense that he's, he's terrified of a teenager. And that's part of what I think is just so shocking about Robert Burns's trial. You know, it really does become a trial of the Reverend Willie Maxwell. And that's what the defense team is trying over and over and over again to get any witness to do, which is to talk about everything the Reverend was accused of, to shed light on how he might have done it and to make Robert Burns's fear and his own paranoia reasonable and to make it seem like, you know, he did what he had to do and that any sane person would have done it. Um, and so that's why, you know, the, the testimony of the man from Eclectic, this guy, Alfonso Murphy, is so interesting. And it's corroborated, actually, you know, one of the other things that's interesting is one of the Alabama Bureau of Investigation agents who, you know, investigated the Reverend and ended up 
testifying at the trial of Robert Burns is a is a man who went on to be sheriff of Tallapoosa County um, for several terms. And, you know, that ABI agent gets up on the stand and basically says, you know, not only that he's taken the testimony of Alfonso Murphy, but he also has taken the testimony of two other men who the reverend tried to get to help murder his nephews. So there's a real pattern to it. And I think that that's part of what's so shocking about the trial of Robert Burns is, you know, it's this it's this moment for the community, not only to think about the reverend's murder, but to talk about his life and to make sense of all the deaths that had come before. Wow, that's so interesting. So we're kind of running out of time here, and there are just so many things I, I want to ask you about. But one of my favorite parts of the book is just your own experiences researching and how you followed Harper Lee's path and how you were able to make some almost spiritual connections with her um, as you did your own research. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really fun question. And, you know, it's it's kind of rare that you're like re-reporting someone else's work, much less someone as famous as Harper Lee. But I really did just once or twice kind of have the eerie experience of feeling like I was following in her footsteps. And the, the story I like to tell most often is um, to the court reporter from the Robert Burns trial was this hysterical woman named Marianne Carr. And, you know, I'd been told Marianne Carr was dead and da 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 and, it turned out she was very much alive. And, you know, I show up at her door one day and we start talking about this case and about the judge who presided over it and about the attorneys. And, you know, a few minutes into that conversation, Marianne Carr says to me, you know, gosh, I haven't talked about this all since Harper Lee talked to me about it. And right away I sit up in my chair and I'm like, you know, I would like to know more about that. And she says, you know, would you like to see the check? And I said, you know, what check? And it turned out, God bless her, um, you know, she had asked the bank for the canceled check. And Harper Lee had written her a $1,000 check for a copy of the court transcript of the Robert Burns case because she wanted, you know, the most accurate record she can of everything that, you know, had happened during the trial. And it was so crazy because, the, you know, for, for weeks and months, I had poured over that same transcript. And here was the woman, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I remember when I gave it to Harper Lee and, you know, she's got this wonderful check. And I love it because one of the funny themes in the book about Harper Lee is that um, she's a really unhappy taxpayer. And she'd made so much money off to kill a mockingbird and the tax rates were kind of higher during that time. It was like the post-war period of, of American history. And so she hated paying taxes. And what I love about the check she wrote the court reporter is it has this incredibly specific memo line. Like if you didn't already believe the story, she literally says transcript of record for Robert Lewis, for, you know, Alabama v. Robert Lewis Burns. And you can tell it's just because she's planning to write it off her taxes. So that was a really tremendous moment. And I was happy to get to interview Mary car because of course she had these wonderful memories of the the burns case and the maxwell case and so many of the legal players who were involved but she also had this you know incredible memory of harper lee and harper lee had come to lunch and met her husband and so quite often i would have experiences like that where you know i was interviewing someone either about harper lee and it turned out they knew someone involved in the maxwell case or i was interviewing someone who i thought would only know about the maxwell case and it turned out harper lee had interviewed them too so it was really quite fun um to get to kind of follow in her footsteps and um Quite often I had the experience of realizing she was just a really great reporter. And I sort of knew that from, you know, looking at her her notes from from Kansas when she had helped Capote. 
But over and over again, I just realized, you know, she had thought through things and figured out people to talk to or gotten certain documents. And so it was a lot of fun. And, and it did feel like I had a kind of fellow traveler as I was working on the on the story. But of course, I, I just feel like I there's no one who would love to read her version of the case more than me. And, you know, she got to interview people like the third Mrs. Maxwell, who was dead before I got involved. And, you know, she spent hours interviewing Tom Radney and he had passed away before I started working on my book. And so there's so many things that, you know, I just feel like I would love to know what she thought and what she found out beyond what I could read in her letters. But I also just think over and over again about how whatever her book is and however much of it she wrote, you know, my book will still always be different because I made her into a character and she was so private and, you know, so averse to any kind of press or publicity or anything that bordered on solipsism. You know, one of the nice things about my book is you just get to know so much about her as a writer and a reporter and the version of this case she was going to write, which, you know, you would you would never, you would never get straight from the horse's mouth because she would never have told you. So it was really fun to get to think about a such a talented writer and to think about what she was trying to do and, you know, the genre of true crime in the 70s and 80s when she was working on her book. But ultimately, I just feel like there's there's a slightly different project at work in my book because, you know, there's this kind of meta story of her and how true crime stories get reported and written and the kinds of decisions true crime reporters make and the access to documents or sources they have and how it shapes the story they tell, which I don't think would have been a part of hers. She was uh, financially set for life um, with To Kill a Mockingbird. She could have picked a crime anywhere in the country from any time period. Why do you think she picked this one specifically? Um, what do you think made it stand out for her? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. And um, thanks for reminding me to just say, you know, beyond her work with Capote, she just loved true crime. She and her sisters would follow these cases all the time. And, you know, actually, not long after she was interested in the Reverend Maxwell, you know, the, the murderous voodoo preacher, um, her, her one of her sisters over in Ufall, Alabama, was like following a different murderous preacher in that town. And so they would talk about these cases. And her older sister, Alice, had like been obsessed with Leopold and Loeb when they were young. And they read Sherlock Holmes and they went back and forth, you know, about these kind of crime stories and followed them just eagerly. So, right, you know, she could have followed anything. And actually, there's this great letter she wrote in 1976. She was like driving through um, Massachusetts and she was writing to someone and she's talking about the Lizzie Borden story. And she says, you know, I know exactly why she did it. Anyone burdened with long petticoats and having had mutton soup for breakfast on a day like that was bound to have murdered somebody before Suntown. So, you know, she followed historical and contemporary cases, but why this one? And I think that, you know, on the one hand, I should just be candid and say, we'll never know. You know, there, there are many reasons she was interested. And she, you know, I quote from a lot of letters where she talks about things she finds interesting. And we know from Mockingbird that, you know, she was interested in religious authority. She was interested in how race affects the criminal justice system. She was interested in vigilante justice. She was interested in small town lawyers. She was interested in people who thought they were more progressive than they were. All of those things were interesting to her. But to your point, you know, there are a lot of other cases that might have qualified and that didn't involve 
a black serial killer and that didn't involve black on black crime and that maybe were more straightforward in the way the clutter murders were, where, you know, the forensic science was just much more determined. You know, the case was a lot tidier. You could follow it from beginning to end. And so, you know, one of the mysteries of the book is why this, you know, why in 1977, 17 years after Mockingbird, does she just get a bee in her bonnet to write a nonfiction book? And, you know, I think the, the, that I make a couple of arguments in the book and I try and give you as much information as I can about her so that you can draw your own conclusions. But I do think in some way, um, like a lot of her life, the, the kind of why of the book she was writing about the Maxwell case will always be a little mysterious. So this mysterious manuscript you mention in your book, there are rumors out there that it might exist as a full manuscript. At the very least, her full set of notes might be sitting out there uh, with the answers you're looking for. What do you think the chances are that more of her work on this investigation exists out there? Yeah, I mean, look, Eric, I think this is like, you know, this has been my favorite parlor game for the last four years while I was working on the book. And I hope that it's a really fun one for readers and you know people who knew Harper Lee at the time just have wildly different opinions and that's everything from you know look this was a dark time in her life and she was depressed and she was struggling with a drinking problem and so she never wrote more than a few pages to someone who you know he's a history professor at Auburn who claims you know categorically look her sister told me she read the whole thing and it was better than in cold blood and other people who say, look, she told me she wrote it, but she just didn't want it published in her lifetime. Or she wrote it, but she was afraid of, you know, the safety of her family because of the reverend's accomplice. So she was never going to publish it. So people have very different opinions. And these aren't, you know, totally idle speculative opinions. These are people who knew her, who talked to her about the case. And, you know, everything from she never managed to write more than a few pages to she wrote the whole thing and it was better than in cold blood. Would you be shocked if her her estate suddenly released it? So would I be shocked? I mean, I tend to be, you know, if you if you truly, you know, said you have you have to stake a claim and I should be clear, you know, to your listeners, when you pick up the book, I give you all of the facts that I can and I try not to deal in speculation and I try not to exaggerate what people know and you know, I give you there's like a little summary paragraph of what all these people say and why they say it and you know, kind of the evidence as it exists in terms of what actually is down on paper and has been discovered so far. But I would be shocked. Um, I don't think that she was able to write a book that, you know, could be put between two covers, like the way, you know, you pick up my book and there's a prologue and an epilogue and 22 chapters in between. I do think, however, that it's incredibly likely we'll get her notes. You know, she was a reporter through and through and just the way she saved her notes from Kansas I think she definitely saved her notes from Alex City. And more than that, I think what's really interesting is, um, you know, I found this cassette recorder warranty and people told me over and over again that she had recorded them, that when she came to interview them, she put a cassette recorder down and she had, you know, made these tapes. And so I think that the tapes probably exist because, again, she was such a scrupulous reporter. She would not have destroyed the evidence or thwarted the effort of someone else who wanted to write about the case. And I think that's very different than a manuscript. So, you know, I really do think if she had had a, you know, beginning, middle and end, and if there were 300 pages, you know, that you could put between two covers, we would have seen that around the same time we saw Watchmen, and there would be more evidence of a manuscript. Instead, most of the letters I've seen are her talking about how hard the project is and how she's struggling and how she can't figure it out. And plenty of people I interviewed said things like, well, she came to dinner and she said she was really struggling with an ending. 
or she was having a hard time figuring out how to put it all together, or she had written two thirds and I, she just made it sound like she could never figure out the last third. So I don't think that it's going to be a book like Mockingbird, but I don't, you know, on the other hand, I think that that still means there could be interesting fragments of it to look at or that, you know, if the tapes emerge, there'll be, it'll be incredibly interesting to hear her voice, you know, interviewing the Reverend's widow or interviewing Tom Radney or interviewing Alfonso Murphy or interviewing any of the police officers, you know, those will still be interesting artifacts, even if they're not, you know, the Reverend by Harper Lee. So I, I'm not quite as sanguine as some people are about the manuscripts she produced, because I think she was a perfectionist. And I think we have, you know, real evidence that she destroyed some manuscripts and that she was so hard on herself that, you know, inadequate work just was not going to see the light of day. And, you know, I think other than the page of notes, other than the chapter that Tom Radney's family has, I just don't see evidence of any more work product. And I think that, you know, we, we could we could expect to find the notes and maybe even the tapes. But, yeah, I, I would be delighted, but but shocked if, if a full manuscript ever emerged. So if nothing else, you might have an expanded second edition of Furious Hours in your future. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope so. I mean, again, I just think, you know, I've spent so much time thinking about this case and thinking about her. So again, no one would be more delighted. And look, I mean, sometimes we're mad when we're proven wrong. And I would be absolutely delighted to be proven wrong. And I like to think that I'm an optimist about everything. So why not be an optimist about Harper Lee? But I think, you know, you're a professional. I'm a professional. I, I don't ever want to seem like, you know, a hype man for Harper Lee. And, you know, so I think if you say to me, well, what do you think she was able to do? I think that she was able to do a ton of reporting in nine months. She was able to produce a lot of really valuable notes and gather a lot of good material but I don't think she was able to produce a nonfiction book like In Cold Blood. Well, that's excellent. Um, so for people who want to learn more about you, your book, your work, where should we point them? Oh, sure thing. Um, so I have a website, I guess, like everybody else and their, their mother these days. So it's just caseysap.com. And there's information about the book and information about um my journalism and writing and, um, you know, I do a lot of book reviewing and things like that. So there's a lot of different stuff on that site and, um, and, and certainly more information about the book if, if folks are interested. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. A pleasure to get to talk about this aspect of the book. Again, I've been speaking to Casey Sepp. Her book is called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.